Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that you do in us through your word. For that continual work is ongoing forever in our days here on earth. So guide our hearts and our minds and our wills to do that which you have called us to do. To come to you to follow after Jesus and to bear our crosses and our lives that we would more and more faithfully be disciples. And through that, grant us to evermore bear the image of Christ himself in our hearts, our minds, and our wills, and our lives that all who see us and encounter us would discover a little more about who this Jesus is. That you would work through us and in us and by us to make him who has been crucified for our sins known to the world. All of this we do ask through that very same Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning, as Mike and Charlene got here, they brought in cups for us, styrofoam cups for our coffee time afterwards. And he commented about having to double check the prices on the cups just to be like, wait, because prices have changed. He was stopped to check it to compare various places to see what the prices were compared to where he was. And seeing that where he was had the best price, he, they got the cups then and there and brought them for us to use and given them to the church. He took the time, so to speak, to count the cost in that moment. Likewise, I think in so many areas of our lives today, we're being driven more and more to count the cost to consider what it is that we are using our time and our efforts and our money for, to consider what it is we are doing in our lives when we have so many options out there. I think of all the streaming services that exist now, all these networks, all of these places online that you can go and watch whatever TV shows you want. Just a few years ago, you had Amazon and Netflix. And now, every movie studio seems to have created their own streaming service that you now have to figure out, do I want to pay for that one or keep the one I have, but what about this thing and that thing, and to consider what is important in those regards, to consider is this a worthy thing to be using right now? We consider the cost in so many areas of our lives, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we deal with our relationships, with our friendships, with our co-workers, with our employers, or maybe our employees, we consider the cost in all of these ways in order to bring out the best for others and hopefully also for ourselves as well to, to do that which is right and good with all that we have. But in the midst of all of that, we have Jesus here today speaking of the cost of discipleship. He does say, Consider the cost when speaking of the tower being built, that the one who builds the tower must consider the cost, lest he not have enough to complete that tower. I think that's important for us to hear today, but not for the reason I many think. Oftentimes when we think about considering the cost of discipleship, we will get this picture of how much will I have to change my life to be a disciple. We think of discipleship in those terms, and there is an aspect of discipleship that is about how our lives change as we follow Christ. 
But considering the cost of discipleship isn't so much about how will I have to change my life, but it's really about what has God done to make change in my life possible? What has God accomplished on my behalf to change me? I think often we don't think about that cost. We don't consider that cost that, yes, we are called to have transformed lives and changed lives, but on what basis does that come about? Is that changed life because I strive harder and harder? I grit my teeth. I summon forth strength and energy out of my own personal reserves and make things change in my life. Or is it that the change that occurs in my life flows out of the transformation that God has caused to occur in me through the work of the Holy Spirit in me that has been given because Jesus Christ died for my sins? The cost of my discipleship is born upon the back of Christ himself. The cross of Christ is where I find my discipleship to be gifted over to me. Because in that death, my sins are washed away, my sins are removed, and I'm given a new life, a new way to live. And I'm called to consider the cost of discipleship with regard to what God has done to make life possible, to make change, to make transformation of who I am, something that I can walk in, something that I can begin accomplishing little by little by little. And as we hear from Jesus today, keep that in mind that the cost of discipleship isn't about me changing my life, but is about God working in me, God accomplishing that which must be done on my behalf. And as we walk through the words of Jesus, the first thing we encounter is hatred. We encounter hatred Jesus speaking of hatred of others. There in verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying here? Is he telling us to hate other people? That in order to follow him, in order to truly be his disciple, I must hate everyone else in this world. I must hate those closest to me in order to follow Jesus. Hopefully all of us are thinking in our minds right now, well, no, that can't be what that actually means. What does hatred mean in this case? What does hate mean here? I think for us to grasp that, we have to jump back to a brief passage in the Old Testament. You all remember Jacob? who stole the birthright of his brother Esau and then left and to go live with his uncle Laban. And while he was there, he fell in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. And so he worked for his uncle for seven years for the right to marry Rachel, but then Laban gave to Jacob his oldest daughter, Leah. And Jacob went to him and said, this isn't right. You said that you would give me your daughter Rachel, and yet you have given me Leah. What is this? And so Laban made a deal and said, Well, I will give you the hand of my daughter Rachel as well, but you must also work for me another seven years. And so Jacob agreed to that. And so he was also able to marry Rachel as well. And shortly after that description of incidents happening, it says that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. He loved Rachel more than Leah. 
And that when the Lord looked down and saw that Leah was hated, he gave her children. You see, in that text, it explains what hatred means for us. It's not that Jacob loathed Leah. Hatred in that moment was not a deep-seated or intense dislike of her. But it was a lessening of love toward her for the sake of Rachel. Now, he placed Rachel above Leah. He cared more and loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And that, I think, is what Jesus is getting at here. That if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, he cannot be my disciple. That you have to get your priorities in the right order. You can't love others more than me if you are going to be my disciple. And in fact, that's exactly how Matthew records these words. Over in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus says, If anyone loves father or mother or brother or sister or children and wife more than me, he is not worthy of me. See, Matthew helps us to see what Jesus is saying here, that he's not speaking of actual hatred, but he is speaking of hate in the sense of you must have less affection, you must have less love toward these others if you are to love me, if you are to follow me, if you are to be my disciple, you must love me above all other things. We're being confronted with a list of what matters to us. To what does our heart belong here? Where do our actual affections lie? Are my affections with God? Are they with Jesus or are they with myself and others? Is my focus upon what makes me feel good? Or are my affections focused toward God and what He wants of me, myself, and I? Hating is about loving someone else less than you love Jesus. Because after all, right there at the end, Jesus says, you must hate even yourself if you are to be my disciple. You must despise your own life in a sense. You must not love yourself in such a way that you push God out of the picture, that you push Jesus into second place. Everything that my affections are geared toward must be lowered in order for love of Jesus and of God to rise to the top. My commitment is to be only to Jesus and the Father and to remain alone in that commitment to Him. My commitment ultimately is not to my family, to my friends, it is not to my feelings or to what I believe is my own good. My heart and my affections are to be turned toward God fully for who He is because of what He has accomplished on our behalf. My affections are not turned to God because He makes me feel good, because He makes me the center of the world. But my affections are turned toward God because He is a good God who has accomplished salvation on our behalf. My life must be given over to Jesus alone. Jesus must take first place in all other commitments, all other affections, all other loves must become second to who Jesus is and to what He wants of me. Even my own desires must take second place to my affection for God and Jesus. This is a reality for me so often every week. All that I am is poured out into worship so much that many weeks I quote unquote don't get anything out of it. I don't receive a sense of having worshipped in the fact that I am being poured out 
and focused on leading worship. Leading the worship of God for his people. I become focused on my serving God and serving his people so much so that my sense or desires get subsumed into that. It must be set aside, my sense and my desire, my feelings, in order for me to move forward in leading God's people. Because if I make my feelings the center of what I am doing, then I lose sight of God. I lose sight of the work He has set before me. I desire to worship, but yet I don't receive a sense of satisfaction, so to speak, from that worship. My joy, though, is found in leading and seeing others led in the worship. My joy comes from the opportunity to lead others, to see others worship as I am graced to lead them, to bring you closer to God. My closeness and my love is tied up in the worship of others, in serving others. It can't be dependent upon me personally. It can't be dependent upon me having a special sense. That must be set aside. My desire to come and experience must be set aside in order for me to look to God fully. Because if I become focused on my sense of worship, then I will lead all of you astray. Because I will be loving my feelings and myself over and against who God is. My worship turns inward then, instead of outward toward God and the leading of all of you. It's about ordering everything, my priorities, in the right direction that, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, when you get the first things first, the seconds will fall into place. That God becomes who I am looking toward. Jesus becomes the one to whom I must always serve. And thus, who I am must be submitted fully to others, must be given over to guiding them, to leading them, for that is the calling He has placed on me. But it's funny how it works. When you start looking at things in that way, when you start looking to God as your first and primary love, as the one to whom your affections are turned toward, placing Him first and the seconds falling into place, as you lessen your love for others, as you lessen your love even for your own family and even for yourself, you'll discover something happens. That suddenly, as you love God, as you turn your affections toward Him and those affections begin to grow, those affections for others begin to grow alongside it. As you look to the, Lord, to the Lord and let your affections toward Him grow and you receive His love more and more fully, your love of others begins to expand and grow. Your love for your family grows. Your love for service will grow. Your love to do that which God has called you to do will begin to grow more and more because you have placed Jesus at the top of this pyramid of affections that we all have. As we look toward Jesus and turn our loves toward Him, all of these other loves will begin to grow in the right kinds of ways. And that is why Jesus then goes on to say in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Come after me, Jesus says, but you must bear your cross. What's unique about that phrase, come after me, is that it occurs often in the Old Testament. It's a phrase dealing with idolatry and worship of the true God. God will often speak to his people and say, you must come after me, you must follow after me, you must pursue me. But if you pursue idols, 
then you will be cut off from me if you come after idols. I will turn away from you. And so here, when Jesus says, you must come after me, he is echoing the words of Yahweh in the Old Testament himself, of him saying, come after me, don't chase after idols. And so Jesus here is explicitly claiming divinity for himself. He is putting himself in the place of Yahweh. When Yahweh has said, you must pursue me alone, Jesus now comes along and says, you must pursue me. If you are to be my disciple, you must pursue me. You must take up your cross and follow after me. In the Old Testament, the people were to turn away from the idols and to pursue Yahweh. Now in the New Testament, Jesus says, turn away from your idols and come after me. Turn away from your loves of others, your love for your family, even your love for yourself. Turn away from all of that and come after me. If Jesus is not God, then he is telling God's people to pursue an idol, a created being, a being that is less than the creator of the universe itself. Come after me, Jesus says. It's so subtle there that I'd never noticed it before. I'd never thought about that before in this way. It's not accidental that he uses that phrase, come after me. He's claiming lordship over everything over everyone, over all of creation. And he is the one who bridges heaven and earth. He bridges all aspects of creation in himself. And so he says, come after me. He bridges the domain of Yahweh, for he is Yahweh, the second person of the Godhead, with the domain of all that is made, for he is truly man. God is the only one who can do something like that, who can bridge these two realities and bring them together. For Jesus is God himself in the flesh. Already just in Jesus alone, reality is fully bridged. That which is eternal has been bound up to that which is corruptible, to that which is not eternal, to that which is mortal, that which is created, that which is not of God, to that which is only created. The uncreated united with the created. And so Jesus says, come after me to be my disciple. And thus, we can turn to looking at bearing our crosses now. We can turn and understand a bit better, I hope, what it means to take up our cross in light of the fact that Jesus says we must hate all others in order to love Jesus and that we must come after him as he is God himself in the flesh. And God himself in the flesh came to bear a cross on our behalf. One commentator says that Jesus tells us to take up our cross, and when he says that, the cross is that which the convict must bear. The cross is that that the condemned man must carry in the Roman world to his death. But the convict does it under duress. He is forced to do it. But here the disciple of Christ does it willingly. We are condemned men and women in this day and age. And taking up our cross is us owning that reality. Following Christ is what we are called to do, but Christ has paved the way of salvation for us. He has walked this path, and he is the author and pioneer of this salvation towards us. Because he bore his own cross. And carrying that cross, he died for sins which were not his own, but were actually our sins. 
He bore the sins of the world by carrying that cross and dying upon it. And so he calls us to walk in that same path, carrying our cross, not in order that we would bear our sins, but in order that we would walk with Christ and be united with him. For after all, haven't we already been crucified with Christ, according to St. Paul? For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And so our carrying our cross is our bearing the reality that we have been saved through that very cross. I carry that cross because I admit that I am a sinner. I own the reality that I am a sinner, that all that I do is tainted by the very sin that is within me. My nature is warped and bent away from God. But the bearing and carrying of a cross that Christ has already carried on my behalf keeps me nearer to God. It reminds me continually of the sinfulness that dwells within, the sinfulness that is crouching and ready to strike. I am a convict carrying a cross, but that cross has been carried by another who was not a convict, by another who is perfect God and perfect man. And I carry that cross because I am convicted of the guilt that I should carry myself that has been dealt with on my behalf. That Christ has taken that guilt from me by bearing his cross. And so the cross that I bear is attached to his cross. The cross that I bear has been borne by him and he carries it for me as I walk this path carrying the cross for he has been united to me through faith and baptism. That greater cross was born before I could ever bear my own. It was a cross that contained the very sins of the world. He carried everything on his cross in order that my cross would be light and easy to carry. He carried it for the sake of the world, that the world might have its sins removed, that the world might be drawn to him as he hangs there upon that cross. For when he is high and lifted up, he will draw all to himself. All will be turned to him, and thus I can turn to him. And so in counting the cost takes on a new reality right now. That as we are called to be disciples, as we are called to bear our crosses, as we are called to love others less than we love Jesus, it all comes together in the reality that Christ has borne our sins for us, that he has made the change in us that will lead us to carrying our cross, that he has taken our sins from us and forgiven us and restored us to himself through his redemption. What is my cross in comparison to his when he has accomplished salvation for the world? when he has borne the weight of the world upon his shoulders in that cross that he carried. I merely follow in the way that he has already created. He bore the full weight before I could even consider carrying a cross. And that there is what Jesus means when he says, count the cost, realize what God has accomplished on your behalf. As you turn to be my disciple, realize what has been laid already, the foundation that you will rest upon, the giant shoulders that you will stand upon. That it is not you working, it is not you building, it is not you fighting, but it is Jesus himself in you, through you and by you working. It is all gift from Jesus that we can work, that we can walk, that we can be saved and become disciples. We walk 
before God and walk with Jesus. We follow him because he is truly God for us. And we are transformed by him that we can then walk the path of discipleship. My discipleship is not me bearing it all on my own. It's not me bearing it at all in many ways. For it is the Spirit himself, the third person of the Godhead, who dwells within me to lead me and to guide me nearer to Jesus. For the Lord your God is your life and length of days, Moses says in Deuteronomy. So we are called to choose life, to walk the path toward death in order that we would be in life. The tension and the backwards thinking of that all, that the way to choosing life is to die to self. The way to choose life is to be crucified with Christ. The way to choose life is to walk bearing a cross and taking it up because Christ took up the cross for you already. And so our life gets wrapped up in the life that he now has after his death, for he has been resurrected into new life, and we partake of that life every moment that we are turning toward him. So may you take up your cross knowing the foundation that has been laid for your taking up that cross, that it is not your strength that is bearing that cross, but the strength of Christ himself in you, the strength of his transformative work in you, the strength of the work of God in Jesus Christ on your behalf. That you are called to be crucified with Christ and to bear that cross because Christ has been crucified for you. So draw near to Christ this day. May we draw near and know our hearts to be changed and transformed. That we might not look at others in the same way that we might look to Christ and have all of our affections turned toward him and renewed in order that we could then rightly and properly love others and serve them as disciples. So be crucified this day in order that you would have new life in Christ himself and be transformed to bear the cross and to walk as a disciple. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.